have these vague memories of being a young kid um, where my life was, uh, I trusted my parents so much and depended on them so much that I didn't even know what day of the week it was. Like, you remember this as a little kid or on summer vacation, you'd like wake up and you'd be like, oh, the sun's shining. Is it Tuesday? Is it Saturday? And then, you know, I wander downstairs and maybe there was some breakfast and mom or dad would kind of let you know what was ahead in the day. That is not how my life goes right now as a grown-up. You know what I'm saying? Like within a millisecond of opening my eyes, I know what day of the week it is and it's like, someone's starting to throw balls at me and I'd start thinking, oh, I need to do this, I need to juggle that. And before I even know it, there's five balls that I'm trying to keep in the air and I haven't even opened my other eyelid yet. And here's the thing. I'm a horrible juggler. Horrible. I tried a few times as an adolescent to practice for a few weeks. Can't juggle. Literally or figuratively. So I had this thought recently, like, Wouldn't it be awesome if as a grown-up, as a pastor, as a lead pastor of all people, that like I could wake up in the morning with a kind of dependence and trust on God that I had when I was a little kid on my parents. Like I could open my eyes and be like, ah, God has it. It's not working. (laughs) I open my eyes. The balls start coming. I start juggling and I realize... I can't juggle. Here's what works. Like, this is my sinful nature at work, right? Telling me, you need to do this. By 8 o'clock, you need to be ready for this meeting. By noon, you have to have this report written. By 4 o'clock, you need to be ready for the elders' meeting at night. Like, all these things, just balls to juggle. If I stop long enough to refuse to juggle and simply to say, God really tempted to think about all the stuff I'm supposed to do today, but I choose to worship you right now. I choose to acknowledge that you're a good father and that you've got it all, and please, 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 God, I know you have some stuff for me today. Just show me what the first thing is, and then I will trust you that you will show me what the next thing is. When I remember to do that, oh man, the first cup of coffee tastes so much better. And the day unfolds so much better. Twice as much gets done even. Not that I do it to be practical, but twice as much gets done. Worshiping God sets our lives in order. Worship is not just a thing that we, like we sing together, for sure. That's one aspect of worship. Worship is not just a thing that we come here on Sunday morning for. Worship is a verb Worship is a way of life that God would have us embrace and enjoy seven days a week. So um, maybe when you get up on Sunday morning, one of the balls that comes at you when you first open your eyes is like, oh, it's Sunday. I have to go to church. Anybody ever had that thought? You lie. What? (laughs) I mean... Everybody has that thought, right? Oh, it's Sunday, I have to go to church. And then we're going to meet these friends, and then I have to get the shopping done, so whatever. You know, there's enough food in the house for Monday lunches, or 
This is our pattern on Sunday as well as every other day of the week. I have to go to church. Wouldn't it be awesome? Or what a difference would it make if instead of thinking, I have to go to church to worship, if we woke up on Sunday thinking, I get to go worshiping to church. Notice the difference there? Can we get this up on the screen, please? One is get to, one is have to, and one is go to church to worship like worship is a thing. It's not a thing. It's a verb. It's something that we're doing. And what if you were already doing it? What if you already were worshiping before you came into this room? I mean, the roof would blow off this place if 50% of us came worshiping into the building. Know what I'm saying? Things that we're eager to do this is a gentle public, public service announcement. Things that we're eager to do, we show up on time for. Or we even come early for. You know what I'm saying? Like if you're going to a Cubs game, ah, should I take the 4 o'clock? I'll take the 3 o'clock train downtown just to enjoy a little more of like what's going on. Like wouldn't it be incredible if we came to an experience together with that kind of eagerness? There's some simple things you can do. Um, you could look at the worship folder in advance. Hum some of the tunes in your head. You could pay attention to what scripture, we always publish this a week in advance, like we're going to talk about, and you could read it so that your heart is tuned to receive in advance what God might say. I don't mean to give you a guilt trip. I just want to see this be a place where more of us come worshiping rather than, got to go to church to worship again. Worship happens both when we join together as the people of God on Sunday, no doubt, key moment, and it happens as we live out our Monday through Saturday lives in obedience to Christ. Now, these two dimensions of a worshiping life are both present in our scripture reading for today, Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. This is one of the great, most inspiring descriptions of uniquely Christian worship. Last week, I said a few words about this. Uniquely Christian worship. It is Trinitarian in nature. The spotlight is on Jesus Christ. If you go to any other kind of worship service, Buddhist, Baha'i, Jesus will not be the spotlight. Like, it makes Christian worship unique. Having said that, however, there is not much in the New Testament that gives us direct marching orders for, here's how you're supposed to have a worship service, people. It's supposed to be 70 minutes long. You'll sing three songs, have a greeting from... Like, there's none of that. There's nothing about what instruments to use, guitars or drums. There's nothing about silver trays for communion. There's nothing about having seminary graduates be your uh, lead pastor or your preacher. There's nothing about wooden pews or comfy seats. There is nothing about any of these details that we sweat about a lot. Here's what there is. Colossians three sixteen and 17. Tremendous freedom and flexibility here. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Doesn't that sound like sharing some scripture together? Sharing the gospel message together? Having somebody preach or reflect on the word of God together, right? Through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This sounds a lot like a worship service. 
right? At least the top half. We got the message, and then we have psalms and hymns. So far, so good. And songs from the Spirit. It's making me a little uncomfortable. Like, what does that mean? Are we supposed to sing freely? Are we supposed to whisper prayer? Oh, boy. There it is right there. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then singing to God with grateful hearts. Sing, sing, sing. And the motivation is we're so thankful we just can't keep our mouths shut because we get to come to church worshiping on Sunday. Now, when we come to worship, I think this is a unique temptation for us as 21st century North Americans historically speaking. When we come to a room like this, looks a little bit like a theater these days, when we park ourselves in seats like this, we automatically conclude to ourselves, you know what, something pretty entertaining and maybe even spectacular should happen here today if I'm going to think this was worth my while for the last hour. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you're basically seating it, sitting in a movie seat right now. We are not going to upgrade to those recliners, by the way, where you push the button and somebody brings you a soda. Like, that would be bad. However, our ancestors would look at us and be like, why are they not sitting on wooden pews? Know what I'm saying? These people are far too comfortable. But we expect something spectacular anytime we show up in an environment like this. The point of Sunday morning worship is not to be spectacular. It's not to wow you with music. It's not for the pastor to wow you. Like, sorry, it's not going to happen. The point of Sunday morning worship is for something supernatural to happen. (laughs) And something supernatural doesn't always mean that it's all that showy you can very easily overlook the supernatural. Quoting here from a researcher named named Dr. Eric Geiger, worship gatherings aren't intended to be spectacular. If we come to worship wanting to be wowed with a style that fits just right, with an order of service and songs that are just to our liking, often we may miss the supernatural. The music's here pretty, is pretty good, right? Amen. Amen. But we do something different every week. It's not like we're on tour and play the same show for 40 straight weeks, right? We're never going to be the Eagles. Lord willing, you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in this room. I'm never going to be a TV preacher. Like, it's not going to be on that level. If you go to a little 12-person chapel sometime, you may think, man, the singing here was horrible. The guy was lost. Was he even reading the Bible? But something supernatural happens every time people get together in Jesus' name. He promises wherever two or three Gather together, there I am in the midst. And if something supernatural happens, I would humbly submit it's better than the greatest rock show you will ever see. Like, which is really, humanly speaking, naturally awesome, spectacular, but not supernatural. 
the best speaker, the most motivational speech you will ever hear, even the worst sermon, something supernatural is going on. There's a really smart man, Elvin Plantinga. He's a leading American philosopher. He won what's called the Templeton Prize for being the leading American intellectual this year. This guy, I heard him say, quote, I have never heard a bad sermon. What did he mean by, of course he's heard bad sermons. He's heard ridiculous sermons. He has an analytical mind that could break apart and tear apart any, even the greatest sermon, and tell them how to improve it. And he says, I have never heard a bad sermon because he recognizes, even with a huge intellect, if I come into the room with a humble spirit, God will do something supernatural if I can pick up on his presence. Next time you're feeling judgmental about a church service, here or anywhere else, remember Alvin Plantiga and the fact that he never heard a bad sermon. He didn't say he never heard a bad band, come to think of it. (laughs) The same could be said. There has never been bad congregational singing. Something supernatural happens when we get together because the story that we remember and gather around, Jesus crucified, Christ raised from the dead, that is supernatural. Know what I'm saying? That is supernatural. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul refers to Jesus as Christ. Jesus was born with the name, Jesus of Nazareth, right? It's what everybody called him. It's his name, It's how we refer to him with love and affection. Jesus, we know Jesus. Jesus in his humanity was crucified on the cross. Christ, however, is his title. It's his job description. What does Christ mean? The anointed one. Anointed for what? What was Jesus anointed to do and be? He was anointed to rule the universe as the one who has risen from the dead and came back to life. Jesus Christ, you put the two together, humanity and divinity. It's like the gospel needs two eyes so it can see, two ears so that we can hear it in stereo. Jesus crucified, Christ risen from the dead. It's why if you read the writings of Paul, anytime Paul mentions the cross of Jesus, he mentions Christ at the same time as if to not allow himself to forget that Jesus has come back from the dead. Sometimes in the church, I think we forget which is crazy because, like, think if you knew somebody who had a life-threatening illness and then they were completely healed and restored and that person told their story like, oh, yeah, you know what? I had this horrible uh, life-threatening illness and it just wrecked me for years and I, all the doctor's visits and ugh. Then you'd be like, but aren't you totally cured? Yeah, but I was so sick. I mean, it was scary. You know what I'm saying? That would be ridiculous, right? Think if you were in a horrible car accident. Your car flipped over twice and, and you got out of the passenger side door totally, no, not even a scratch. And you told the story, I was in this car wreck. My car was totaled. Oh, man, total dense. It flipped over twice. It was bad. That's not how you tell the story. Anybody? Right? You'd be like... I can't believe I'm alive. 
This is how the gospel works. <laughs> the cross. But Jesus is alive. He did not stay in the ground. Okay, here's an earlier verse from Colossians chapter 3. Notice how the Apostle Paul cannot shut himself up that Christ is alive. If you would, anytime there's anything referencing Christ, meaning the risen one, or anything pointing above, just use your pointer finger and point upwards. Okay? Since then, you have been raised with Christ, who's the risen one. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Yep, that's up there too. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Like, do you feel the message after doing that? Like, that's the gospel, and you can't escape the good news of it. In the theater, uh, classically speaking, stories are either tragedies or comedies. Even to this day, you watch a film, it is either a tragedy or a comedy. I mean, a tragedy doesn't necessarily mean that everything that goes wrong could go wrong or that it's horrible. A tragedy means that at the end of the story, you feel unresolved. Things are not fitting together yet. You're left with that like, ugh. A comedy, on the other hand, does not technically mean that things are funny. A comedy means that when the story ends... Everything has been woven together into one piece, and you see how it fits and how it works. You hearing me on this? This is a little bit of theater talk. Tragedy, ugh, don't see how it works. Comedy, it all works together. Is the gospel, is the Bible a tragedy or a comedy? Hmm. Lots of bad stuff happens in the Bible. It's a comedy. The Bible is a comedy. Now, if you quote me on this, please give the, <laughs> the full explanation uh, when you tell your neighbors. God is telling us a story in which everything in the universe is ultimately going to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is pure comedy. Almost everybody believes. Even people who don't go to church on Sunday, North Americans everywhere, anyways, almost everybody will grant you that Jesus was a really good guy, that he probably existed, and that he was unjustly crucified on a cross. Almost everybody will grant you those tragic elements. It's only the truly crazy people who will say, and then God raised him from the dead to rule the universe. Only the crazy people see the comic nature of God's story. I am a crazy person. I fully intend, as your lead pastor, to routinely lead us into the implications of what it means that God has told us the best comedy ever, that Jesus lives and reigns. Can you throw up uh, that one again? If you'd be so kind, read the second half of this passage with me. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
If Jesus really is alive and reigning over the universe, it opens up the possibility that every moment of our lives can be lived in connection to him, worshiping him. This is one of the great contributions of the Reformed accent of Christianity of which this church is a part of. Um, One of the best minds in the Reformed tradition put it this way, there is not a square inch anywhere in all creation over which Jesus Christ does not say, this is mine. Like, not that Jesus is selfish, but that he was risen to rule the entire universe. There is not a square inch. This is why Reformed people are not scared to go to certain restaurants. This is why Reformed people are not scared to go to certain countries. This is why Reformed people are not scared to go to any, the worst downtown anywhere. Like, you will find Reformed people with the mindset, Jesus is sending me here to redeem So years ago, I used to teach uh, music in a community college. Probably my least favorite genre of music is, like, death metal. Does Jesus say over death metal, this belongs to me? (laughs) I had some students. You know, I'd give them projects and music theory. Lots of my students were of the guitar-slinging, death metal-playing Uh, kind of brand of musician. And what I came to discover about them was that listening and playing metal gave them like a, a catharsis, a release of anger and nasty feelings. And for me, it works exactly the opposite. Like I listen to metal for 20 minutes and I just like, oh, I got to get somebody. (laughs) That's because I'm not fully redeemed yet. So, who am I, musically speaking, to condemn a whole genre of music that is doing something good for my students? You know what I'm saying? So often we deify our personal preferences and we're like, I don't like that, so like, that must be God forsaken. My, my, my. God can show up anywhere. There are things that are very close to pure evil. Okay? Okay? in the world. Probably don't need to catalog them right here. But even in those situations and places, God is already there at work, and he is inviting his followers to show up and be in that space at work to work justice and peace and redemption and to flip the whole thing upside down. Like, there is no place in the entire world that you need to be scared of as a believer Every part of life, every moment of life, if you can accept it and stay connected to God, can be a place and an opportunity to worship. There was a man 400 years ago named Brother Lawrence. Uh, He was born just outside of Paris, France. About age 18, he joined the army because he figured it was a good way to get a roof over his head and a couple square meals a day. Uh, That didn't work out super well. Uh, 400 years ago, there was this thing called the Thirty Years' War going on. He was embroiled in the middle of it. He got out of the army and joined a monastery, largely to have a safer roof over his head and still a couple meals a day. This man, Lawrence, uh, 
met Jesus Christ and in the history of the church became what I believe to be maybe the most intentional worshiper there has ever been. For maybe 40 years after becoming a monk, his job was to wash dishes for his brothers and whoever else from the community would show up. He washed dishes. Late in life, maybe about age 65, he's promoted to sandal repair. Okay? He did not have spectacular jobs. However, his contention was, whatever I do, however menial, I can do this as an act of worship. I will wash all these dishes today because I love you, God, and you ask me to serve my brothers. I will fix these sandals that smell like Brother Joe's stinky feet because, God, you gave me this sandal and this is what you're asking me to do today. After decades of doing this, maybe by age 40 or so, uh, Brother Lawrence's face shone with such a radiance and peace that people started coming to him for spiritual direction and counsel. Lawrence, what is it about you that makes you so ridiculously happy all the time? Why do you always sing while you're washing the dishes? And Lawrence would tell them about his connection to Jesus and his worship of God. And even 400 years later, these meager records of the conversations and counsel that Lawrence gave to his friends and members of the community are compiled in a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. This book is still a bestseller. A former, now deceased Chicago pastor named A.W. Tozer recommended this book over every other as a way to say, here is the vision of how to live every day of your life in connection with God, practicing the presence of God. I would humbly submit this question to you as a way of encouraging this. For you, this week, how do I get to worship Jesus Christ in the week ahead? Are you willing to ask yourself this question in the morning when you first open up that eyeball and all the responsibilities of the days come rolling at you? And if you're able to think, nope, Oh, God, I worship you, and you have got it all. Show me the first thing. How do I get to worship you today? Somebody needs to write this on the back of your hand or on your worship folder. Like, for somebody here, this will bring you clarity and joy this week. Brother Lawrence's life was not spectacular but it was tinged with the supernatural, which is so much better. In order to worship God, you do not need to be smart or particularly skilled or successful. In order to live into the presence of God, you simply need to love God and want to worship him with whatever he has given you in the day in front of you. Next week in worship, uh, we are going to start um, a month-long kind of recollection of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, okay? Some huge stuff went down in the church 500 years ago, and now 500 years later, we're going through a 
I think, parallel tumultuous time. So we're going to reflect on the scripture and a little bit of history and a little bit of maybe what the Holy Spirit's whispering about in the future. 500 years ago, one of the things that was of great contention in the church was what happened when the church celebrated the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. I mean, theologically, folks from the Roman Catholic tradition um, had this doctrine called transubstantiation. Big fancy word, which simply means the bread and the wine, when it's broken and poured, literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ when the church partakes of it. And one of the bones of contention in the Reformation was the Reformers were like, you know what? That is not actually what's going on. We're called to remember Jesus. It's not like some spectacular thing literally, scientifically, changes the substance from one to another. Hear what I'm saying on this? This is not a debate for us. This is 500 years ago. I would humbly submit to you that there is a different miracle of transubstantiation, one thing becoming another thing every time the church gathers from worship, and it doesn't happen in the bread. It happens in the people. Here's what happens. We come from all different walks of life with whatever we're worrying about, and we come into this room, and when we unite as folks who get to come worshiping to church, we become, we are the body of Christ on earth. That is a miracle of one thing becoming another, that little old people like us, in Jesus' name, are for the world the body of Christ. I mean, I don't know where Jesus' literal body is, his risen body. I mean, like how cosmically, like he's somewhere. Like, I don't know. I don't know how. I can't explain that to you. But his body on earth right now, like look around. (laughs) And preferably smile. Like we are the body of Christ. And when we go from this place, it doesn't just happen in this room. As we go out into the world, you You, we, are Jesus' hands and feet. And this is why it's so important that we're not just well-behaved Christian boys and girls, but that we're merciful, that we're willing to say a difficult word, that we're willing to stand up and say the truth when it's unpopular, that we're willing to be the crazy person who says once in a while, actually, Jesus is alive. I worship him. It's a miracle that happens to us. I'm going to close this message um, by singing a short prayer for you. Uh, Again, it's about 500 years old, this short prayer, which simply states this miracle that we are the body of Christ here in this place and on earth. Christ has no body on earth but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes which he looks with compassion on the world. And yours are the feet which he uses to walk doing good. Yours the hands that he 
Christ has no body on earth but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes which she looks with compassion on the world. And yours are the feet which she uses to walk doing good. And yours the hands that he would choose to bless the world right now. Christ has no body on earth but yours. Christ has no body on earth but yours. Christ has no body on earth but ours. Christ has no body on earth but ours. You pray with me? God, we thank you for this miracle. We believe that this miracle happens because you were crucified and you have come back from the dead and you make of little old us your body here on earth. Thank you that we don't have to be smart or clever or good-looking or powerful, that all you require of us is loving you and a desire to act obediently in your name. Lord God, we want to do that. And for those of us that might not want to do that, help us just want to want to do that. And that hearing that desire in our hearts, you will honor it and move us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, hey, friends, I'm going to invite the deacons forward in just a moment. This is the final week uh, that we are allowing for special offerings for hurricane relief. Uh, in the last three weeks, our congregation um, has given more than $17,000 already to help the organization World Renew be on the ground, uh, both in Texas and in Florida. This makes me really proud of our church. If ever there is something rotten going on in the world, we can mention it in church, and within like a couple weeks, there's $10,000 to send somewhere. Like, that does not happen everywhere. So for being the body of Christ in that way, like, Good on you, people. Uh, I was going to say something else, too. Oh, on a much less serious note, we have a community directory. If your mugshot was taken a few months ago, there is an envelope with your name on it and a directory in it. If your mugshot was not taken, there is just a directory for you out in the lobby. So uh, if you want to make use of that, great way to keep track of people, review how photogenic you are, whatever else you want to do with it. Um, but hopefully that will help be one of the ties that binds us together. Deacons, please come forward. Church, please be generous.